Hi, I'm Bill Crystal. Welcome to Conversations. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Jonathan Carl, uh, Chief Washington Correspondent for ABC News, uh, Chief White House Correspondent for, I guess, the second term of the Obama administration and the only term of the Trump administration. It's a long stretch at the White House, kind of maybe more than usual, would you say? Uh, yeah, long stretch. And I and I was there on and off uh, going back to my early days as a CNN correspondent. So I actually have been in there in the White House uh, as a correspondent, uh, beginning with Bill Clinton. So yeah, long, wow. long, long time. Such a young person too. Amazing, right? <laughs> and I and also you covered State Department and, and defense and have always, I think, as someone myself interested in foreign policy, you've always been, I'd say, more interested in that than the typical uh, Washington correspondent. So, um, but you've been a, a, honestly a very good reporter in all these areas. And I've written two very good books uh, on, on the Trump administration in 2020, Front Row at the Trump Show, which covered, I guess, the first three years, really, of the Trump administration, two and a half, three. And then the the 2021 betrayal covering the last year, really. Um, I, I've got to say, I think that they're really excellent books, the good reads, many great stories. Uh, you know, you have a good, uh, you're good at conveying the characters and there are plenty of characters to convey, but also a real narrative of what, why it mattered and what's important about it. I, I would praise the books more, but I'm just going to get in and say that they are the, the two books you should read more than any others about the Trump White House and the Trump administration, but I'll just get in so much trouble with all of our friends who've also written books, right? That maybe I should, I'll stop with that. <laughs> you should read the books. But anyway, thanks for coming on today and thanks for uh, for joining us in conversations. Absolutely, thanks for having me. So I want to talk about sort of the meaning of what happened over the last year. Uh, the book's called Betrayal, and I think that's a strong title. And I think what you really try to back up in your, in your argument, but I mean, say a word about Donald Trump, you've met him many times, many times more than 99% of us have met him. So uh, how'd you first meet him? What's, what's he been like to deal with, to interview and so forth? You know, I open up uh, Front Row at the Trump Show with the surreal first meeting with Donald Trump, which happened, you know, when I look back at it, it actually perfectly fit the pattern that would, it would, it would be established over the following couple of decades. But I met him in 1994. Uh, uh, at Trump Tower. He gave me a tour of Trump Tower. I was a young uh, reporter for the uh, New York Post. And I uh, had this, you know, I, I basically had this crazy idea for a story. And, you know, I, I gave him a call. I literally called, the, I didn't, you know, this is back when you had actual phone books, you know, and I got the number for the Trump organization and asked to talk to Donald Trump. And I got a very quick call back. I pitched him on this idea and he said, come up now. So I, I went and you know, went around Trump Tower with him and he divulged all the great secrets of the Trump organization as uh, a, a, a a source in the Trump organization. He he couldn't be Jonathan Barron because he was standing in front of me, but um, but he was, uh, <laughs> that's how it all started. But, you know, every interaction. So he actually met with you, but wanted to be, you when you <laughs> yes. wrote the piece, he, you, he was just supposed to be called a source. And what was this delicate issue you were discussing with him about the Trump? Oh, it was a very important issue because Michael Jackson had just married Lisa Marie Presley, and uh, it was a secret. Actually, they'd been secretly married, and the story had just been revealed that they were that they had been married, and they were staying in Trump Tower. So my idea, as you might appreciate, is. Why would the most famous newlyweds in the world, I mean, this is the king of pop and the daughter of the king of rock and roll, why would they choose Trump Tower as their basically honeymoon spot? And uh, he saw some 
you saw some promise with that story. And the New York Post in classic fashion made it the, the big, you know, what we call the wood, the front page, <laughs> um, you know, uh, uh, secret honeymoon hideaway. And he, he told me where all the other famous people who had apartments in Trump Tower lived, of course, on background. Um, you know, Sophia Loren is over here on Floor X, you know, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the king of uh, whatever it was has a place over here. And it was it was it was uh, it was quite a quite a scene. I mean, I obviously never thought I would um, ever see him at the White House. Uh, I probably didn't think that I would end up at the White House either. But, you know, years later, I end up at the White House as the president of the White House Correspondents Association, ABC correspondent. And of course, uh, with him as president. And I got to tell you, Bill, some of the interactions with him, which I describe in in both books, um, are just like unlike. I mean, obviously, anything you'd ever have with a with, with a president. But I, I had a, I had a lot of a lot of contact with him beyond the what you saw, um, you know, in the in the, in the press conferences and, and and you know out in front of the cameras. He on various occasions would summon me to the Oval Office in my capacity as the head of the Correspondents Association. Every one of those meetings, and I, I described them in some detail, were absolutely surreal. But they did have a well, one thing in common is I would get brought into the Oval Office, which would be empty, usually with a couple of my Correspondents Association colleagues. And um, we, we would be told, sit down you know, in front of the Resolute Desk uh, we're going to go get the president. And then we would be sitting there alone in, in the Oval Office, which, as you know, is not really typical, you know. <laughs> and, 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 no, yeah. you could be putting <laughs> bugs in the, you know. Under the... <laughs> because this has to be a test. I mean, we're being we're clearly being videoed, right? They want to see if I'm going to rifle through the desk or what. But you're, you're there for several minutes and then he, and then he comes in. And anyway, the, the, in one of those meetings, which I describe in Betrayal, he actually compared me uh, to his son, Baron. And his unwillingness to say that he loves his father. So this is not the stuff you typically, um, you know, experience. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, that um, you, you tell one story about a meeting. Uh, it's a written prompt to press availability, one-on-one press availability with him about North Korea. I think in the first it was 2017, 2018, maybe. Yeah, th- this 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 was almost. Uh, cinematic. Um, it was the day that Trump announced that he was going to engage in direct negotiations with uh, with North Korea, with Kim Jong-un. And we didn't know the announcement was, we knew something big was coming because for the first time in his presidency, he ducked his head into the briefing room, causing, as you can imagine, quite a stir. Uh, and, he, and, and the crush of cameras came in. I was back in the, in the ABC News booth on the other side of the, of, of the briefing room area where the you know, networks have our little offices. And, you know, he came out and he said, we're going to have a big announcement. You guys all have to cover. It. It's going to be at seven o'clock. And it was like, what is this? And then he, and then he disappeared. Um, and everybody ran, kind of tried to run after him and up to the press secretary's office and nobody got any details. I was still working on my script for my story that night, but I, I walked out um, and went up to see what I could find out a little while later that the press secretary, Sarah Sanders was not in her office. And then as I walked back down, you know how small the geography of the of the West Wing is. As I walked down out of the press secretary's uh, office, suite of offices to go back to the briefing room, you, you can you can see right down the uh, the colonnade um, and there's a glass door there. Uh, and Trump was there standing in the colonnade with Pence, 
with Sarah Sanders, with a couple of other aides, and he waves me over. The, the entire right on the other side of the wall is the briefing room. So all the press is there assembling for what this God knows what announcement's going to be and trying to figure out what it is. And here's the president, you know, and I'm like just a few minutes away from having to be on the North Lawn to report for ABC News on you know World News Tonight. And he waves me over. And again, I'm out there until I finally have to excuse myself with the president. To do your broadcast. <laughs> when I'm asking, so is this about North Korea? Is it about talks in North Korea? It's like, no, it's even bigger than this. It's even bigger than that. And, and I hope you give me credit. You better give me credit. And then he launches into a long, tedious story about one of the first interviews I did with him telling Pence that I basically the message is I used to be a good guy. Now I'm all this fake news, but I did this terrific interview and he got a lot of heat for it, but it got tremendous ratings. I mean, basically everything he said about it's a little bit off, but I mean, he's the president and he's standing there with the, with the vice president and kind of like about on the verge of this kind of massive announcement, really truthfully in this case, big announcement. And it's just kind of like reminiscing about an interview seven or however many years earlier anyway very oh, yeah now we i don't want to dwell too much on, on him and really get more to, the, to what he did in that last year but it is uh it is kind of amazing you know one thing you mentioned the oval office and you being left alone there which is kind of astonishing um you and your colleagues you know one thing that's always struck me and i'm just curious whether this struck you uh, never really talked to anyone about this uh knows the white house and and the oval office Trump, he's such an egomaniac, obviously. I mean, all those photos of him sitting at the desk at the Resolute with people lined up behind him, whether it's, you know, supporters, uh, staff, guests. And I remember I was there a long time ago, but I was in the Oval Office some and in photos. And, and President Bush, and I think this is true of President Reagan and, and other presidents, Clinton and Obama, would they would stand up and join and there'd be a, maybe some photo of, you know, uh, veterans, you know, he's announcing legislation, signing legislation to help veterans and the veterans would stand and the president would stand in the middle. Trump always seemed to me to insist on being seated at the desk and the veterans or whoever it would be, would be behind him in a semicircle, which I think is such a classic sort of childish, but maybe effective power move, right? Is, am I wrong? Did you, did, did you ever notice that? Or am I just like, I once quickly looked at sort of photos from earlier presidents, and I think I'm right that that was not the typical way in which one is, it is more like the way one imagines dictators being photographed. I'm at the desk and my, you know, the, 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 the my, you know, the staff and the lesser lights are behind me sort of, but including rather distinguished guests. I don't know. No, it's, it's you're exactly right. And and there was one of those photo ops, which I actually describe in, in front row, um, which I thought was very revealing, too, because it's it's when he gave uh, an address to the nation, you know, from from the Oval Office. And um, he invites the crew, uh, the television crew that was uh, that was shooting it to, to come and do a photo. And again, the same thing. He's sitting at the desk. He invites everybody to stand around him. Pence was in the room. He invites Pence over to take part in this photo and uh, Pence, you know, uh, stands to his left and Trump taps his um, his uh, his fist to the to the to the desk and telling Pence uh, to, you know, go around to the uh, <laughs> to the other side. And Pence dutifully walks over and, and goes to the other side. I mean, it's like it's like he was just kind of like a, you know, it's like summoning your your puppy to like go over here. I mean, it was it was very very strange. But this Trump is personally arranges the the yeah, choreography of the of the photo op. 
personally arranges uh, uh, the choreography of it. And I don't know if he really had a reason to have Pence over there, if he just wanted to show that he could like, with a, with yeah. a tap of his uh, fist, uh, get his vice president to go over to the other side. Um, but no, he would direct the, um, you know, you know, Phil Shine, you know, famously went over there to be the, you know, the deputy chief of staff for communications, you know, after storied career at Fox News. And, and uh, you know, he, he was allegedly, you know, going over there to kind of make him look better in these appearances. And, you know, he joke, you know, people joke about him. He's the lighting director, but actually Trump directed the lighting and did everything. I mean, even on that sense, uh, you know, I mean, he was always kind of orchestrating and producing his own, his own interviews and his own events. And he had a sense of how to do it, I guess, to be fair. I mean, it's not like, yeah. you know, he didn't, uh, didn't succeed in some way, I guess. So let's begin with, the, now more substantively, maybe begin at the end with the interview you had, though, to continue on the theme of interviews with Trump, the interview you had with him at Mar-a-Lago in March 2021, which is kind of the culmination of the, the book and is really astonishing. And I mean, say a word about just about that. And, and, and you requested an interview, I suppose, having most since you were writing the book and he, despite your betrayals of him in the past that he mentioned earlier, you mentioned earlier that uh, he, he gave you the interview. No problem. You, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I requested the interview. Um, really. Um, uh, I, I believe I requested it even before he left office and um, you know, I, I got, I, pretty quickly got my assigned date and time. Uh, it was in, it was in March, uh, middle of March. So it was, you know, not long after he left, uh, uh the white house, um, a little less than, than two months after he left the white house and, uh, was summoned to, to Mar-a-Lago. The, the, the time was a little unusual to me. It was five o'clock, uh, in, in the early evening. Uh, um, and I got there, uh, and, uh, I remember, you know, driving into the place. I had just, come in you know rented a car and you were in all covid time so that it's a guy i think i think i was the hearts was the company i used and there's a big ugly sticker on the side of the door because to show when you open the door that, it, that the seal has been broken it's been perfectly sanitized nobody else has been in there and you know i pull up behind a bentley uh with my, with my, with my you know kind of rental suv with the ugly sticker on the side and uh and, abc and, doesn't provide you a bentley I'm yeah, sure. i don't know standards don't know. are going down you know it was just a shame um but I, I ended up spending more than five hours at the place um and um when i when i came in they explained to me that the interview he had a couple of aides uh, with him um uh both of whom i had known you know from his time as as president and they said the interview is going to be right here. And I'm like, right here. We're in the lobby of, of Mar-a-Lago. This is the place that all of the members come in and, the, and their guests uh, on their way out to the patio for dinner or over to the uh, the bar area. And but, I mean, right there in the middle, there's a there's a couch and a, and a chair, and that's where we're going to be. Um, and he, you know, he showed up at more like five thirty. He couldn't be nicer. Um, you know, offers me a diet coke. Um, Nothing else, by the way. I was a. Do you want a diet coke? Um, and um, and we sit down, and uh, you know, he had had a kid, a couple of complaints about something that I that they something I had just written, but it was all you know, it was all kind of uh, somewhat jovial. Um, but as the, I, I, the the interview, the on the record interview, lasted about you know an hour and a half, um, and. You know, it's very different, Bill, when you go to interview 
anybody really, but w- w- without the cameras, and and especially when it's for a book, I'm not. It's a you have a very different objective than you know you're, you're going to do a 15 minute or a five minute or whatever it is television interview. This is, you know, I really wanted to get his state of mind, uh, and and especially about January 6th because the it was still so raw. Um, you know, Kevin McCarthy had already been down there to, to, to see him. So he had been, his rehabilitation was beginning among Republicans. Um, but it was all incredibly uh, raw still. Um, the impeachment trial had, had, had ended not, you know, just a, just a few weeks earlier. Um, you know, uh, seven Senate Republicans had voted uh, yeah. uh, to convict him. Um, and even those who, didn't vote to convict him, had condemned him thoroughly. Uh, so I wanted to, I wanted to get a sense. And, and, you know, the, 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 the thing that really blew me away was how positively he looked back at January 6th. You know, I wanted to ask him about that tweet he did. You remember at the end of January 6th, where he said, remember this day forever. Mm. I was like, why, what do you want people to remember about it? And he, and he, he, you know, and, and now he has said some of this stuff elsewhere, uh, you know, that this was the biggest crowd he ever spoke to in his entire life, uh, that they all came there, you know, for him from all across the country. And it was just the best, most loving. And yeah, it got marred a little bit later. He said that was the only thing, the only hint that he gave that there was something wrong with January 6th. Um, but the most, the, the thing that really, really and I've, and I've interviewed him a lot. I spent a lot of time around him, but th- this was the most shocking thing that he had ever said to me. And I, I mean, maybe that I've ever heard him say um, was when I asked him about Mike Pence. And first, you know, was he worried about Mike Pence? He's like, no, no, I heard he was just fine. I heard he was very fine. Um, and, but, but you heard those chants. I mean, that was terrible. And he said, well, they were angry. They were angry. And when I said they were chanting, hang Mike Pence, Literally, the next words out of his mouth were, it's common sense, John. Now, he's not saying that Pence should have been, you know, executed, I don't think. Uh, But the fact that I'm bringing up this, like, incredible, I mean, the most outrageous thing maybe about the day was that these, these Trump supporters were marauding through the Capitol calling for the vice president's execution and he's not even taking a beat to say well that's crazy but you know but overall that wasn't nothing there's no hint that there's even a problem with that um and then you know we 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 go through it all um and the interview you know he says he has to go to a to another meeting but do i want to stay for dinner and I was like, yeah, well, sure. Uh, so he said, we'll go out. They'll give you a table out there. So I went out and, you know, by, by now, by the way, the whole time, and the reason why the interview was in the middle of the lobby is that all the guests were coming in, right, walking right past us. And he wanted everybody to see that he was being interviewed. And he was, and he would be, and he was so, I mean, and I have the transcript, uh, uh, which, which they also made their own copy of, which is funny because you see interruptions Look, I'm here. This is the great Jonathan Carl. You see this? I'm here with the great Jonathan Carl of ABC News. You know, of course, all the terrible things he has actually said about me is kind of funny. But but for this purposes, for you know, he needs to be impress everybody that he's there with this. You know, that I'm coming there to, to talk to him. Um, but um, you know, one just quickly on this is we 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 sit down for 
I sit down for dinner with a couple of his aides and I sort of, I mean, I figure this is a good opportunity to see what is going on at Mar-a-Lago and who's there and what the scene is. We start to eat, you know, they bring the appetizers out. Uh, it's an outdoor patio. There's like 125 people or so at various tables. And then people start applauding. I'm like, what is going on? And, and I look and then people get to their feet and they start applauding. And it's because Trump is making his arrival to the patio, uh, walking along. There's kind of a colonnade also at Mar-a-Lago. Um, and they're all applauding him. And I, and I leaned over to one of the people I was eating with. I said, so how often does this happen? And they said, every night, every yeah. night. He makes it. He goes somewhere because he has a very important meeting right before dinner very important and then he walks in and everybody stands and applauds and then he goes and he takes his seat at a table right amidst everybody else's table but it is separated with a velvet rope um and he has his you know in this case he had dan scavino eating with him and a couple of other people and you know anyway that's yeah. down there that's that's trump in exile in mar-a-lago i mean it all sounds so ridiculous but Obviously, the, as you put out in the book, what happened in the run-up to January 6th, the January 6th itself is not just, some, there are aspects of ridiculousness to it, but big aspects of dangerousness to it too. Yeah. And so let's, I mean, let's walk through that. Sometimes. I think one of the great virtues of your book is you really sketch out that it was a plan or a plot, and it may have been a little haphazard at times and a long shot that he could overturn an election, but it wasn't something he hadn't thought about before the election. It wasn't something that he didn't have people working on. It's not, it wasn't something that didn't that was set up to have the effect you know to 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 hopefully he thought overturn things on january 6th so say a little bit about that i mean how maybe for a minute about the pre-november 3rd situation uh, everyone's sort of forgotten that he was warning about the you know there's a certain kind of debunking of well he was foolish because he didn't understand that the republicans could get mail-in ballots too but of course wasn't this part of a more of a an attempt to delegitimize the election ahead of time with these unprecedented mail-in ballots because of the pandemic as a way of then casting doubt on the whole thing in case he lost you know, reasonably narrowly. Uh, so he then could do what he did between November 3rd and January 6th. I mean, it seems to me people underestimate, they, they treat him as if he's just kind of a child who doesn't understand how mail-in ballots work or the Republicans in Florida used a lot of mail-in ballots as opposed to someone who is uh, perfectly willing to make up things and tell total untruths and conspiracy theories, but kind of for a purpose. I mean, he, he laid the groundwork for everything he did far in advance of Election Day. And there, there are a couple of things that, that are important to understand. And I, I really try to show how this how this was really building up to a the, the culmination that we saw for, for nearly a year. My book starts right as he is uh, acquitted in the, in the first impeachment trial. Um, and he brings in uh, uh, Johnny McEntee, um, his loyal, you know, former personal assistant, and puts him in charge of presidential personnel. And the first order of business is to fire everybody who had anything to do uh, with helping uh, in the investigation related to uh, to Ukraine. Johnny so, McEntee has been, is a, what is he at the time? 29 years old, something like 29 that? 29 years old. He's actually just turned 29. And uh, as uh, Mick Mulvaney uh, remarked to me later, you know, we, we were putting somebody in charge of presidential personnel uh, and all the hiring and firing of political appointees in the entire executive branch of the U.S. government who had never hired a person in his life. And he was uh, like Trump's... Uh, body man right as they call it bags. yeah the body guy Car carries the bags um yeah. 
And uh, but but he was unflinchingly loyal and uh, would often tell Trump about people that he felt in the White House that were not sufficiently loyal. And so, you know, originally, you know, the, you have like the, the, the Sondlins and the Vinmans and the, you know, the people directly associated with that first impeachment trial that are fired immediately. But then there's this effort to kind of call the uh, executive branch of anybody who is even has a hint of insufficient exuberance in their loyalty for the great Donald Trump. So that's one part of it. But then the pandemic, as the pandemic hits, um, and, you know, he's got that whole crisis on his hands, he is faced with assessments by his political team that the ele- his election prospects do not look good. I mean, to, to, to their credit, uh, you know, Brad Parscale, uh, who was uh, uh, his campaign manager, um, uh, uh, some his pollster, um, uh, Tony Fabrizio, and and others were were quite blunt that things l- looked bad. This was going to be an up a re-election was going to be an uphill battle. Um, that that you know he he was he you know the way Brad Parscale, I mean, total you know overstatement, but the way he put it to him was, you know, look, you were headed, you were going to win, you know, you were going to win over three hundred, you know. 50 electoral votes uh, in a landslide because uh, the economy had raged back. You, you, you beat impeachment and then this happened. And, you know, now uh, you know, it's, it's bad. It's really bad. So Trump knew that he had a that there was a real chance he was going to lose the election. He was being told this by his political team. And if they're telling him bad news, you know, the news has to be really bad. Um, so uh, that's why he was quite, I mean, sometimes Trump really does just say it out loud. I mean, he, you know, he said the only way we can lose is if they steal it from us. I mean, this is stuff he said in his rallies. He said a variation of that a couple, you know, more than once. But the moment that I really crystallized to me what was going on is, you know, there's this, we're in a pandemic, the country is locked down and you have some primaries that are going forward. And, you know, states are trying to deal with how can you safely hold an elections. In some cases, the elections were being postponed. In other cases, they were making rapid provisions for, uh, you know, for, for, for expanded mail-in, you know, voting. But you needed to do something. And what if we're in that situation in, in November? I mean, my God, what, what, what are we going to do? And in my head, I was thinking about the uh, the, the Spanish flu uh, pandemic of 1918, where the peak death uh, uh, toll was actually in early November of, 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 you know, so I was thinking, my God, I mean, what, what if we're in that place and people can't vote, you know, because you have to make a choice of keeping yourself safe or exposing yourself to a deadly virus uh, and voting. And there's no uh, vaccine yet, obviously. So. And there's no vaccine and there's no, and there's no, there's no treatment either. Um, so I asked actually at a, uh, a pre- one of those, one of those daily press briefings he was having in, in, in the spring, this would have been in early April, I, I believe. Um, I asked him, you know, what, what, what kind of contingency, I mean, silly me, I was asking like a serious question of the president of the United States and expecting that he would give me a, you know, hoping that I would get a serious answer. I said, what, what contingency plans do you think should be put in place to ensure that the election can go forward? Um, and do you, uh, do you agree with those that are saying that we need to have, you know, universal mail-in voting so people can vote without, you know, going, you know, in person to the polls. 
And he went on this tirade in response to my question um, about the evils of mail-in voting and saying, you know, basically no way and that it's all fraud. And that, so, I mean, this is like, this is, this is April. I mean, <laughs> this is the spring. Uh, and he was laying this groundwork uh, for challenging the results. Again, the important context is while he's being told by his political team, you know, that, that, that he's going to face a tough, tough battle to win re-election. And, and then he goes through the election campaign, which has its own, I guess, various moments of insanity and so forth of the debates and, and all that. But what uh, and then he loses um, and won't accept defeat, of course, on election night. Right. That, I don't know if you were there. Were you there at the White House at that 2 a.m.? I, I, I was on I was on set uh, for our election coverage in New York for ABC. And when he gave that speech, um, which, if you know, if you remember. So we, we've focused a lot on the January 6th speech. But I think that the most dangerous speech of the Trump presidency was the one he gave at 2.30 in the morning um, uh, election night, uh, because not only did he declare victory when he was actually, you know, I mean, we wouldn't obviously have real results for another several days, but I mean, there was no basis for him to declare victory. Obviously uh, he was, it was looking bad. And again, he was being told by his team, it was, you know, it was looking bad. But he was team. ahead because of the, or the early vote, the mail, mail in votes were was, counted yet in some key states. So he looked ahead. There's a uh, mirage. Uh, looking uh, ahead, but, but, but by 2.30, the mirage. It was obvious, was, yeah. By 2.30, the mirage was already starting to fade. He was still ahead in Pennsylvania because Pennsylvania okay. was going to take nearly a week to, to, to count all the mail-in votes. But, but the mirage was fading in, in, in Wisconsin and Michigan. Uh, you know, Fox had obviously declared uh, Biden the winner in Arizona. Um, it was looking It was looking bad. Um, it wasn't definitive. We nobody had declared a winner yet, obviously, but it was looking bad. And he comes out, and not only does he declare victory, but the other thing in that speech that struck me as so dangerous is he he said he was going to go to the Supreme Court and he was going to get the Supreme Court to fix this, and he was going to stop the voting, stop the counting. I mean, think about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> stop right now while I'm while I'm ahead. Um, uh, and he was going to go to the Supreme Court, and I thought. And I, and I said this on, you know, that, that night on, on, I was like, look, he's not going to go to the Supreme Court. There's no basis to go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has nothing to do with this because people don't understand that. What they know is that he just rammed through a confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, you know, uh, uh, you know, just, just, just a couple of weeks before, before the, the election. Um, they know that he's got three justices on there. There's now a solid conservative majority. So he's doing two things. He's raising expectations among his supporters that somehow the Supreme Court would, would ride to the rescue and he won. Um, and then he's raising this like fear among everybody that is opposed to him that, oh my God, he's going to steal it with the Supreme Court and, you know, memories of 2000 and everything else. And it's, and I, I, I was just worried we were going to have violence on the streets, you know, that, that maybe a lot of it's spurred by Trump opponents who are like, oh my God, this, this guy's going to use the Supreme Court to steal it. So anyway, it was, it was, it was, I think, uh, there are a lot of dangerous moments and 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 very bad moments. I think that was that was at the top of the list. No, I think that's very important that you call attention to that speech. I mean, just two points of the Supreme Court. Yeah, it was a way, a placeholder, you might say, for what he then actually tried to do, which was use his own, use the Justice Department and pressure state officials and uh, have electors submit phony slates. So ultimately, 
he might have been able to have hoped that the court would save him, but that was kind of just a way of saying it's not over so that he could then go about all these other things, which I want to talk about in a second. But, um, but I think that's a very important, uh, a very important point you make uh, um, uh, about that speech on, on November, I guess it would be early in the morning of, of, of November 4th. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, forgot, I temporarily forgot my other my other point here, but um, that that was I was I was prompted though by, by your by your comments, but it'll come back. But um, so what then uh, gets you? I mean, what's what struck me most in the next few days, the firing of the defense secretary, and at the end of that week, I guess it was, I think on Friday. Uh, since when do you fire defense secretaries? You know, four days after an election, and everyone interpreted that as well. He didn't like Esper. Esper had not been. Uh, you know, loyal, and it was just kind of vengeance. But, you know, then he puts in people who start thinking about the answer, who've talked about the Insurrection Act, and he's meeting with people, former generals like Mike Flynn, who are interested in that. And then the Bill Barr quits. I remember that was when I really sort of got hair on fire and sort of, uh, it's like, you know, I know, know Bill Barr. I didn't much like what he did as Attorney General, but if he can't put up with what Trump's trying to do, are we so confident that the others are going to block him? And what if you suddenly have the Justice Department uh, saying that it really is in doubt and the vice president's entitled to say that some of these states aren't resolved and so forth? The other thing I was going to say before, I'll just say a second is, you know, I was on a call. This is, I don't think it's been much publicized, but the, not me, but I mean, the call itself. There's a series of calls the next the day after the election where progressive groups were really alarmed, as you just said, <laughs> they, they might well be. And there was a big debate on the left, and I'm not part of that world, but I was sort of an ally for this election. Uh, should they go to the streets? I don't mean riots, but I mean, should they have massive demonstrations? Should they call a march on Washington for that weekend, the kind of equivalent of the Women's March after the inauguration, and say, we will not let you steal the election? And they decided no. And a lot of their people wanted to, as you can imagine, yeah. partly celebration of the election, partly, you know, we're, we're not going to let you take this away. That's what you do in America. If you're a citizen, you, you, you peacefully demonstrate. And I've got to say, they just showed quite a lot of discipline and restraint to the, the progressive groups, which they don't always do. Uh, sometimes they disadvantage, in my opinion, but in sort of holding everyone back. And they really were worried that they would give Trump an excuse you know, there'd be some violence, there'd be counter demonstration, suddenly there'd be, you know, violence in Washington, suddenly we're talking, we're back to the Lafayette Square type situation, Insurrection Act, you know, I, I was, it was an interesting moment that I think has been underreported, it's not a White House moment, it's more of a, I don't know who covered those groups exactly, but I, I don't know that it's been reported as much as it might have, how much they kept their people out of demonstrations, including on January 6th, incidentally, when they could have had a counter demonstration, right? And and saw that that could just help Trump. Anyway, that was what your your when you mentioned well, what you what, I mean, so what you mentioned. I'm impressed that you saw that in real time, so to speak, at 2:30 a.m. on on November 4th that that was a possibility. Um, but I mean, it it really felt ominous for you know one reason I think that that it, that it was particularly ominous to me is 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 that I knew. Uh, the uh, General Milley uh, and um, uh, uh, he'd convened with, with with a couple of other senior military leaders a phone call over the weekend with one representative of each of the of the five major television networks uh, to effectively say, "Look, whatever happens in the election, you know, the military is not going to be used to uh, to to uh, to adjudicate." The, uh, the 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 results. In other words, there will be no coup. Uh, we're not going to. This come. is the weekend after the yeah. election. 
No, no, before. Right before. Yeah. And that's yeah. really astounding, right? I no, remember hearing I mean, it's, 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 you, have you ever seen chilling. anything like it's that? Chilling. I mean, it's chilling to, to have the, the top, the nation's top military official basically say in so many words, we're worried we're about take part in a coup. Well, we're worried about a coup, I mean, which why, means, why you, I mean, why, why are we even, what, what's that? So and incidentally, because this is general Milley who, when he was appointed, so my friends and kind of, you know, civilian military world, were unhappy in a way because he was the most considered the most loyal, the most Trump loyal of yeah. the different candidates to be chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and someone who had sort of pandered a little bit to Trump to maybe get the job, even if he was that Army Chief of Staff. In, in, in contrast to Dunford, who he'd replaced, who you know, right. seen as, yeah, no. So, so, so anyway, that just to bring home how astounding it is that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, a Trump appointee was so worried about the, the possible what trump might possibly do or what the civilians who were about to take over defense maybe who already knew Asper was going to be fired were, were to do that he wanted to get so why would he talk to correspondents just to get on the record in a sense uh yeah just to just 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 to kind of uh you know it was like this weird reassurance yeah. uh and so you guys didn't uh, alarm people more than they you should i suppose yeah yeah, yeah yeah maybe maybe that was part of the thing he but he wanted to you know he, he i mean he he felt that there was a need to to get this message out there um but you know when the president comes out and tells the country that the voting meaning the counting needs to stop yeah because he at this moment still has a razor thin lead because primarily because Pennsylvania and Georgia are still uh, that um, and, and that he's going to go to the Supreme court to make that happen. You know, if people believe that you would go to the streets and like, Oh my God, what is he doing? Um, so then, then on the Monday um, you know, it, it's not until, you know, the results are announced on Saturday uh, by the networks, you know um, and then Monday he fires that entire civil civilian leadership at the Pentagon. Now he, he didn't fire Milley, um, who was confirmed uh, military officer, but he fires the Secretary of Defense. He fires uh, the Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, the Under Secretary of Defense for uh, for Intelligence. He fires the Chief of Staff of the of the Pentagon. I mean, basically a decapitation of of the entire civilian leadership that was doing what that had opposed his call to uh you know to to use the insurrection act to send active duty american troops uh, to to american streets during the during the un, the unrest during the early summer you know the riots following george floyd all of that so it's like it looks like he's maneuvering to do kind of exactly what millie warned you know said that he wouldn't be part of i mean it's really ominous in those in those early days really 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 ominous i think more than you know, most people realized. No, I, I agree. And I, for me, and I was in touch with some people pretty who had been in the, in the Trump defense department who had done their, and, and who believed in some of the Trump agenda, but who were, had left at various times and, uh, and then got fired. And I mean, the degree to which they were alarmed. Now, some of the alarmism, it turned out, you know, it wasn't going to launch a war with Iran suddenly or something, but the degree to which if this happened in a foreign country, if the national security agencies, the defense department above all, but then there were reports about the CIA that I don't think were false, that he wanted to replace Haspel and then yeah, of course well, justice. Those, those are, those are correct. Those are hundred percent correct. Is that right? Yeah. He, he had acted to do it and, and then was forced to pull back because, uh, you know, it was going to result in, 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 in more resignations and it was going to be, you know, bad for him. Uh, but look, there is there is a famous meeting which uh, the New York Times first reported about, uh, and then I got much further detail on 
uh, on November 12th about Iran, where Trump is asking for military options to take out the nuclear program. This is November 12th. This is right after the election, right after it's, the results are out and after he's brought in his new uh, leadership. And, um, you know, I recount how the new acting defense secretary, Chris Miller, is telling him exactly how it can be done and saying it very much can be done. Um, here's how we'll do it. We'll fly planes from Barksdale. We'll do this. We'll do that. Um, after that meeting, I report uh, that Secretary of State Pompeo, who, you know, had been the ultimate Trump loyalist for really the entire time, um, called up Bill Barr, the attorney general, who was not in that meeting. Um to say that he was really concerned about developments at the Pentagon. And the concern was that Trump could do something dramatic just to try to throw every, you know, whether it be, you know, launch a, an attack or maybe rapid immediate withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan or, or South Korea or Germany or whatever, um, or, or something, you know, on the streets of, of America, uh, you know, American cities. So, you know, the fact that Pompeo is calling Barr and saying we might have a problem on our hands. It's amazing that Pompeo, to me, just as a side, you know, is still out there pretending like he's like the ultimate Trump loyalist and the great successes of the Trump administration, which he was so central to in his telling. Never a hint of any of this. Uh, I mean, you know, I also talk about how he he was very much involved in the 25th Amendment uh, uh, consideration after January 6th, still out there pretending like he's the ultimate Trumpist. Um, but he saw the danger firsthand and was and was quite alarmed by it. And, and Barr, who leaves because he won't he sees what's coming and what Trump then tried to do with Jeffrey Clark and all that and yeah. legitimizing the fake electors. Barr leaves, but with this letter full of praise of Trump and says Nothing I mean, maybe indicates that the election wasn't stolen. So that's something, I suppose. But otherwise, that the Justice Department has found no evidence of that. But otherwise, doesn't speak up between, to my knowledge, uh, maybe maybe the day after, maybe on January 6th itself, he says a, a sentence or two, I can't remember. But And then subsequently the same. So it is kind of astounding, right? Barr, Pompeo, Pence, in a way that you might say, one might say, that historians will give them, they deserve some credit for for stopping worse outcomes after November 3rd. Uh, but they won't talk about that because I guess they think, they think it ruins either their political future, but Barr doesn't have a political future. So what, you know, or they just want to be in in good uh, shape with a, a Trumpy, a Trumpified conservative movement and Republican party. What do you, what do you make of all? It is kind I, of a funny when you think about it. I mean, normally if you're sort of the, I'd say after Watergate, my vague memory is, and you know, that the people who stopped Nixon from doing various things near the end or ushered them out. We're pretty happy to tell reporters yeah, right. you know, that they, what they did. So they don't, they're not just Nixon loyalists. They were also people who put the country first, but in a way these people who did put the country first, I think sort of for a while there after November 3rd, won't talk about it, which has its, I think, effect. Don't you think going forward that people don't really understand the severity and the granularity of what happened. They, they should read your book and they get a lot of it, but I'm saying they don't get it firsthand from these people. No, I mean, I, you know, I tried very hard to talk to Bill Barr. He was, you know, I mean, I, I had my list of people I wanted to speak to and he was right at the top of the list. Um, and, you know, it, it took a long time. I, I, you know, his, his, his 
people uh, were handling such things for him. We're saying, yeah, he'll talk to you. And then it never happened, never happened, never happened. He lives in my neighborhood. Right. Uh, I literally walk my dog by his house uh, on, 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 you know, on occasion. And um, uh, he finally agreed to do the interview um, after I called his cell phone. That's how it got. Like, I got his personal cell phone. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I'll do it. come over. And, and I came over a few days later and we had this interview. And it was the, the terms of the interview was on background. You know, I wouldn't quote him by name. Um, and I was so amazed by what I heard from him, which was a total repudiation of everything Donald Trump was saying about the election and a, and a kind of a case by case, you know, talking about how he went and personally looked into these allegations and how he himself told Trump that, that they were bullshit. Um, and I was like, I, I, you gotta let me put this on the record, please let me quote you. And he ended up letting me quote him on it and use, use that stuff on the record. Um, but it's one thing to see the words in my book. He's never done this in an interview yet. He's never, now he's got a book coming out. I think you're going to hear more of it there. And he will obviously do interviews around the book. Uh, but I, you know, looking at the January 6th committee, I think in a guy like that, I mean, it might be too late, but I mean, you, I, I want to see him at a, at a witness stand uh, before the cameras saying exactly what he told me. It'll have so much more impact saying it was all bullshit, um, all the election fraud, that Trump wanted him to use the power of the Justice Department to seize control effectively by taking control of voting machines and declaring fraud where there was no fraud and, you know, instructing states, you know, state uh, local leaders that, that they needed to, uh, you know, to, to, to undo the elections uh, in, in their, you know, the results in their states. I mean, I, you need to hear him say this stuff. Um, and it, it is, it is, you know, I mean, he, look, he, he didn't shy away from it when I talked to him, but again, it took me a long time to get in there. And at first it wasn't even going to be on the record. Uh, and he still hasn't done it in front of the cameras yet. And for me, the equivalent of that was in a way before the election to try to get people uh, whom I knew and I talked to and also went to some effort to get in touch with them occasionally when they were ducking to say on the record that Donald Trump should not have a second term as president. There's no question that John Kelly believed that Donald Trump should not have another four years in the Oval Office. There's no question that even H.R. McMaster, who probably is a little more loyal, uh, believed that whatever problems they have with Biden's foreign policy, they knew he should not be president for another four years. But both in 2019, when I was trying to find Republicans to run against uh, Trump, uh, which would be better for them because they'd be more conservative, obviously, as uh, options, uh, or in 2020, when the choice became Biden or Trump. They just were not willing to say it. At the end, there was a little bit of, you know, on background, you know, some bank shot, you know, someone was yeah. allowed to say that they had the impression that these people weren't comfortable with Trump perhaps having another four years. But who knows how many voters would have changed their minds. But, uh, you know, if you're the chief of staff to the president or the former secretary of uh, defense or national security advisor, I mean, John Bolton actually did say that. It was interesting of, of all of them that, you know, said, no, he should not have a second term Bolton. Then, of course, I can't vote for Biden. So I'm writing in someone I know who, but, but at least, you know, and I, only every four years you get a chance, you know, that was kind of a big deal, right? I mean, a second term would have been, don't you think, well, let me get to that then. So what don't you, do you think what happened between November 3rd 
What happened with McEntee and those characters during 2020, the, the, the loyalty oath, so to speak, the purges, and then what happened after November 3rd, where Trump tries to use the Defense Department, the Justice Department, et cetera, to achieve his own personal political goals, which in a way is a follow-on to Ukraine, but so much more dramatically so. I mean, doesn't that say something about what he would do if he actually were, renom- were nominated in 2024 and elected in 2024? And I mean, I'm sort of, that's why I'm sort of, a, shouldn't Bill Barr like at least say that? He can endorse the most conservative, you know, <laughs> president possible on judges, constitutional law, you know, church and state or whatever, most possible yeah. conservative candidate possible. But, but, don't you need to draw the line before Trump? I mean, why, why, what do you make of the fact that they won't, I guess? Maybe they will, I don't know, in, in a year or something. You know, the, 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 the thing, the reason why the McEntee kind of thread of this story is so important is, you know, if, if, if McEntee had had his way and had completed his work uh, by the time we got to this transition period, um, you know, maybe there wouldn't have been a transition uh, because the people that were there would have been totally and completely loyal. So, you know, Chad Wolf over at the, uh, 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 you know, Department of Homeland Security is being asked to see his voting machines because Barr has refused. So now we got this other, so you do it, Chad. And, and you know, he refuses. Um, you know, Pence refused, obviously, on, on January 6th to do what Trump wanted. Uh, Barr, Pence, Wolf, uh, you know, to a degree, uh, Pompeo. I mean, what, what, what if, what if there had been total and complete loyalists in each of those jobs? Um, what, 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 what could have happened? I mean, these people did ultimately stand up uh, uh, to Trump, even though they don't necessarily want to advertise it much after the fact. Um, I had a one of the very first interviews I did for the book. Um, was with somebody I can't name, but he was a very prominent um, and important official in on the national in the national security um, space uh, during the Trump administration, and uh, very thoughtful, very very uh, you know somebody that 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 um, widely widely respected, and not in any way considered part of a you know post Trump administration never Trumper anti he's not a deep state guy I mean he's a real conservative he was loyal to Trump um but he said to me at the end of the interview we, we I interviewed him over lunch uh, and uh, as we were getting up to leave he said to me you know it just it uh, I, I'm just horrified at the thought of what a second term would have looked like who would have been in the cabinet and the answer is, who knows the names, but the, the cabinet would have been effectively chosen by John McEntee, uh, you know, or screened by John McEntee. He wouldn't have gotten people that had standing to, uh, you know, willingness to, to stand up to Trump. I mean, that, that would have been the goal anyway. It would have been to have complete toadies in each one of those uh, uh, spots. Um, and maybe all acting, you know, I mean, would, would Trump have gone through the... Um, you know the the whole process of of Senate confirmation. I mean, he was he was he was pushing the limits on on everything uh, at the end. Um, yeah, and I think I mean, and it would have been. I think it's so interesting what you're saying because so the people who stood up to him at the end. I mean, disappointing me for for years before that, but whatever. Uh, were people from the pre-Trump Republican Party, Mike Pence, obviously, but yeah. Pompeo had been a member of Congress and a 
so to speak, normal conservative member. I think he had supported Rubio in 2016, if I'm not mistaken. Pence had thought of running himself and was not a Trump's member. He agonized before. And then it, didn't he support yep. Cruz, I think, in Indiana? Yeah, yeah, not, yeah. He had, not he had Trump. Enough, endorsing Cruz and praising Trump. Right. So he yeah, was not. Beautiful. You know, this uh, is but, great. <laughs> and uh, Barr, obviously, attorney general under the last year or two of George H.W. Bush. So you had pre-Trump Republicans who had accommodated, rationalized, enabled in ways that people like me found uh, distasteful and, and dangerous, but whatever. At the end, McConnell, I put in this category too, and on the Hill. Um, but at the end, they wouldn't quite, you know, they they couldn't wouldn't quite go along. But none of those people, in if Trump were to be elected, nominated, and elected by this Republican Party, by a Republican Party that he will have shaped both in 2020 itself, but then for the next four years, and will have won presumably then in 2024, or, or come close enough to overturn it. I mean, the idea those people won't exist. They won't be pre-Trump Republicans who have accommodated to Trump. They'll just be, I think, really Trump Republicans, right? Yeah. And that's, isn't that sort of the, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the dynamic, it seems to me, that's going on now that people don't quite, you know, uh, understand that the, 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 this is where that last year is what the next four years would look like. I mean, not, not the first three years would be sort of what he, ha, you know, gradually has overcome. And that's why the astounding, you know, Liz Cheney will not be the number three person in the House when Trump's next president. At least right. will be number three, unless she's the VP candidate in 2024. And she will have explicitly assumed that, won that position of number three by being a promoter, not just an, a, a rationalizer of or a non-challenger of, but a promoter of the big lie, of the election right. lie. She sure and, was. Yeah. So the dynamic that you capture in the last year has continued since that last year, and that's where that interview is at Mar-a-Lago is so interesting. You might have, as you heard it, thought, gee, I can't believe he's saying this stuff. But do you think I don't think he feels I don't think he feels that you damaged him by printing what he said, right? I mean, what 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 I what I thought um as I and, and I, I you know as he said what he said about Pence. And again, I say I, I really think the most really, really the most outrageous thing he's probably ever said at least at least in at least in my opinion and, and certainly to me um you know for him to have said that to basically justify the people that wanted to murder mike pence just think, think about those words for a minute i i immediately thought what what are republicans going to say about that this has to be it right i mean i you know that it, it's probably i mean you know the whole he could shoot anybody on fifth avenue thing but i mean this is and and it's like you know i mean i don't know it'll be very interesting to see if you know when we get to primary debates whether or not he runs if if you know those that are up there on the stage can at least be asked but it is striking i mean brad raffensperger who's you talk about in the book i believe and yeah. you know we have the sure. actual audio recording of the phone call to him there's not been any great rallying to, you know, it's important for the Republic. He's a very conservative guy. He, he still doesn't oh. regret, he says, voting for Trump. I've had this argument with him personally. And he's up for re-election there in Georgia. And there's been no rallying by uh, other established, so-called established Republicans to defend Raffensperger on the notion that, you know, it's bad for the party and for the country if the guy who stood up to Trump in a totally law-abiding way, who otherwise was a Trump loyalist, really, that he, you can't let him be defeated by someone who's wanted, you know, Trump's uh, pressure to prevail. Tony Heiss, who's literally, that's his campaign against Raffensperger, that, you know, he didn't cave in to Trump on this. And of course, the same with Stefanik against Cheney and, 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 and so forth. 
um, the Eastman memo and the, the people who were running as Trump loyalists are basically on board the sort of theory of the case that's outlined in that memo, right? So I, I think the degree to which you now have a situation where uh, what seemed astonishing between November 3rd and January 6th is now, I don't know, not quite the agenda of the party, but certainly accepted fully by large parts of the party. Some just won't talk about it. They just prefer not to confront it. But an awful lot of people are kind of running on it. I mean, does that, I don't know. Is that correct? Does that strike you? Is I mean, I mean there, there, there's certainly that I do see all that you just said. I think there's all there are also indications that uh, that that Trump is losing some altitude. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you saw, but uh, but speaking of John Bolton, he he conducted he commissioned his own poll um, that that he says you know shows that uh, this j- just just out now today I think uh, we're we're um, uh, saying that. Uh, uh, you know, the Trump's hold on the Republican Party is slipping um, and, the, and the number of Republicans calling themselves Trump Republicans is declining. Um, so, you know, who knows? But I think you see other indications and I think there are going to be a few real important test cases. But by the way, what happens in, in Georgia, uh, you know, uh, does does uh, does Kemp win uh, re-election? Does does Raffensperger uh, lose uh, his primary? Uh, what happens to, to those who challenge Trump, um, who are running? Some of them have, have already running for the hills, but but th- those that are running for re-election, that those that voted for impeachment or voted for conviction in the, in the Senate, do any of them win? Uh, Lisa Murkowski, does she uh, does, does she win uh, re-election? She's one of Trump's favorite targets. I think she probably does. Um, Liz Cheney, you know, I mean, conventional wisdom would tell you she's going to lose in Wyoming, but, you know, there are a whole bunch of some truly crazy people lining up to run against her in in Wyoming. If that primary is crowded enough, does she actually win? I mean, if she did. So, look, I I, I don't know. Um, Trump seems entirely focused on the 2020 election. It's exactly where, you know, McConnell and McCarthy and others don't want to don't want to be focused. Um, but they've made the calculation that they've got to, you know, somehow not antagonize him. Yeah. That was the calculation they made on November 10th, basically. And, yeah. and look what happened the next month. So maybe, yeah. you know, of course, it could change and he could have things could happen that would make him less qualified. What do you expect in terms of what you narrate? Uh, what have we learned since your book? What do you expect us to learn much more uh, from the January 6th committee or from Justice Department? you know, indictments and and investigations, or do you think we kind of know what happened? I think, I think that we largely know what happened. I mean, that there are a few um, known unknowns uh, to, to quote Rumsfeld, Um, you know, in terms of, are there any connections between those uh, militia groups, those paramilitary groups, the real extremist groups, and people in Trump's orbit, uh, you know, those that we saw in military formation going into the building, is there any connection there? Um, as you know, Bill, we've talked about this. I, I, I think that the larger question about January 6th is not actually the the uh, the, the attack on the Capitol, it was the efforts to, uh, to overturn the election. Uh, and the attack on the Capitol was not the most important uh, part of that scheme by any stretch. But but that is one question. Are there you know? I mean, was there any coordination whatsoever? Will we learn anything about that? Um, I think we'll learn a little bit more 
depending on how we do it, how, you know, what happens with the, uh, the, the, the executive privilege fight at the Supreme Court um, about, about what Trump was actually doing on, on the 6th, but we largely, we, we largely know. Uh, but I think that where the January 6th committee could have a real impact is, uh, you know, hearing from some of the most uh, important voices in the Trump administration and people who had strong support by Trump's, by, 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 by Trump loyalists, by Trump, you know, voters, people who were looked up to by those people, um, actually speaking in public in the way that they have spoken either in private or, or, or away from the cameras. And I refer, I mentioned Barr, but you mentioned another one, John Kelly. We know exactly what John Kelly thinks of all this. Uh, he has said this, he has said it to people like me. I have quoted him. Uh, he has said it to other reporters. Uh, he, he's, he's never really come out in, in a public forum and said this stuff. So again, John Kelly, Tired four-star Marine general, a guy that kind of reeks gravitas and seriousness, the way he speaks, the way he holds himself, a guy that was entrusted by Donald Trump to, to run the Department of Homeland Security and to be his chief of staff, to have that guy stand in front of the cameras before the lights and, and say uh, that, that um, you know, Trump was mentally unfit to be president um, and, and, and why, and go in chapter and verse and say it the way he would say it to have Barr say what he, what, what, what we know he believes, um, about, about Trump's unfitness and about what he was asking him to do, which would have been, you know, a fundamental violation of his, of his oath of office. And, and to, so I think that can actually have an impact. You know, they're talking primetime hearings, I mean, I think the country would take a moment, including people that are at, you know, those Trump rallies would take a moment to hear what what John Kelly had to say, what Bill Barr had to say. And, and what, you know, frankly, what some of these Republican uh, less well-known, um, but I think very compelling, these these lifelong Republicans in the states, uh, you know, the uh, the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, the uh uh, the Senate leaders in in Michigan that thoroughly investigated all of all of Trump's ridiculous claims out there, Brad Raffensperger, to have them, you know, we, we know what they have to say because we've heard it, but they've never really had this moment where the eyes of the nation are upon them to tell their story about what happened in the election and the tremendous pressure that they were put on, including you know ultimately death threats and and, and all kinds of horrible things. Uh, orchestrated by Trump and his team to try to pressure them to say what they knew wasn't true. I think it could be all, you know, I think it can, it actually can move the needle. Um, so it's probably the stuff we already know that would have the, that, that would have the, 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 the greatest impact, um, you know, seen in, in, in a, in a dramatic and compelling way where, where, where people are watching and paying attention. No, I think that's important. You know, some of my friends who are very concerned, I think correctly, of course, and I am too, about sort of what could happen beyond Trump if he went away tomorrow. The, the toothpaste is out of the tube in terms of violence, extremism, conspiracy theories, you know, a lot of craziness. Uh, it's not going to stop if Donald Trump just, you know, decides well, to, to play golf. That's, that's one question. But having said that, 
you can't deal with everything at once and you can't solve all that right away. Obviously you can fight it in many, many levels, whether it's political primary, you know, Republican primaries or general elections or, or fixing social media or, you know, a million things obviously. Right. But, but I, I think some of my friends who were very much uh, alarmed about that, and I think they're right to be, don't see though that a first step, an important first step would be coming to grips with what you call the betrayal. And that, and that's a little Trump specific in the sense that it doesn't really deal going forward with why, you know, certain people shouldn't be saying what they're saying and how dangerous that is and whipping up resentments and hatreds and so forth. But but if you came to go to the betrayal and what Trump tried to do and why what he tried to do was so dangerous, you'd at least have a first step, at feel, I feel like, in getting towards then, few, uh, it looks backward looking to, to, to focus on that, but I think it would affect the forward looking sort of judgment of what's appropriate in a democracy like ours, uh, of, of what guardrails need to be respected, what norms need to be respected. And so, I don't know, I don't know if you agree with that, but I, that's why I think- I, I, I do, it's, it's uh, setting the record straight, um, but, but you're right, if Trump disappeared tomorrow, you know, a, a, a lot of that, a lot of that is still out there. And if, if, if the nine, if the January, not nine, the January 6th commission exactly. committee, um, you know, thoroughly establishes his culpability for all of what we saw unfold, um, and, and disproves his lies in the eyes of at least some of those that, 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 that are, that are believing it, it will have had a, uh, it will have had a tremendous impact, but that that's not going to be everything. Yeah. Well, your books, books and your reporting has laid the groundwork for that. I guess you'll be, I'm sure you'll be following the January 6th committee. You have any inside dope you'd like to share with viewers <laughs> here of conversations about what's going to happen there or, 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 or otherwise, or has Trump reacted to the book to you per, just to close where we began maybe with yeah. Trump personally, uh, um, has he reacted to you directly about what you've published or what you've dis- dis- discussed in terms of the book? Uh, uh, he said he said he has. Um, he's been pretty, pretty disciplined. Um, uh, another author who I shouldn't say who was recently down at Mar-a-Lago said that Trump began by complaining, you know, on and on about me, um, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, he's put out a couple of statements when my when, when the stuff I wrote about Bill Barr, including all the stuff on the record that Bill Barr told me. I came out. I did it as an advance uh, in the uh, in the Atlantic. Uh, Trump put out uh, a, a, a couple of just long screeds, really long statements. Uh, one was specifically attacking Barr, um, but the other one was attacking me for fake news, saying my story was fake news. And I, um, I, I, I actually called back up on this. I was like. And, and I didn't talk to him. I talked to, to the person that, that put this, you know, that sent the statement around. I said, but wait a minute. It's on the record. Is he saying that Barr didn't say that, that I made it up? Or is he saying, what, what, what do you <laughs> Totally incoherent. But, um, you know, he's, uh, he is continuing to talk to people. Um, like I mentioned, this another, another author uh, from a, what you'd call a mainstream news organization who went down to see him just recently. You saw he did the interview with, with Steve Inskeep. I, I think he's getting a little, you know, desperate that he's not able to get the attention that he used to be able to get. Um, and I think that may 
make him act in ways that are even more erratic if that's possible it is possible i guess and uh and also he you know he's not foolish in a way to be uh saying it's fake you know he, he has to lay the just like in 2020 it seemed crazy when he began with the mail-in ballots and people would say well you're a florida voter now mr president you know that you're voted by mail and you know that right. florida republicans have benefited from that don't you as if he didn't understand this but that's not what he it's not like he doesn't no, understand no, no. what bill barr told you that it was on the record or that it's yeah. crazy, therefore, to say it's fake news. He needs to lay the predicate for his future, uh, as well as for his vanity and so forth. I understand some of it's psychology, but I don't think it's crazy from a practical point of view for him to have to sort of keep uh, keep on saying it's fake news and 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 discrediting what Barr has said and and making it possible for him to therefore go forward politically. He can't accept that as the last word. Yeah, and and he and he. Uh... You know, he can never he, he knew that he can never accept the fact that he lost. Uh, yeah, that's and, a very important point. Uh, Say a word about that. because I think that people underestimate how important that is to and we'll close with this. So I'll let you go. But it, to his own, both to his self-image, but to his actual image. I mean, that, that, and to his, his actual image. I mean, his he 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 understands and he's actually talked about this over the years uh, quite candidly that. That the, the, the secret to his image is that he is the guy, the image, a uh, guy that never loses. Uh, he's the ultimate success story. He's the biggest, uh, best developer. He's the biggest, best business tycoon. Uh, he's the greatest, you know, golfer. I mean, and survived the bankruptcy. And I think even yeah. the downside stuff becomes part of the success story, right? He he I overcame mean, he, the bankruptcies, you know. And, and and the way he overcame the bankruptcies was by maintaining his image. When you know during those bankruptcies, the only asset that he had that was worth anything was his name, um, the brand. And the brand was tied up in the idea that he's the guy that is the ultimate, you know, rich guy, the ultimate success story. So, you know, he said famously of his followers that they would support him even if he shot somebody on fifth Avenue. But I think in the back of his head, he thinks, but they wouldn't support me if I lost, uh, you know, that's the one thing that's the secret. That's the secret to his success and to his power is the perception that he's the ultimate winner, even at times when he wasn't even during his bankruptcies. So he couldn't acknowledge that he lost. He couldn't acknowledge that he lost by God to Joe Biden. Uh, it would, it would, it would, it would all come crashing down. So interesting. Jonathan Carl, thank you for taking the time to join me today on, on conversations. Thank you, really, Bill. Thoroughly and, enjoyed it. Thank and you. And thanks for your good work, uh, both every you know, day to day, but also with these, with these two books, which I will once again recommend everyone read and, and uh, I won't say that you don't have to buy any of the other books that all of our friends have published and are still publishing, but uh, they should begin with begin with yours. So, uh, Jonathan, thank you very much uh, for taking the time today. And thank you all for joining us on Conversations.